focus has been on you. And really, Lord, another act of worship is to open your word and say, Lord, would you personalize this in my life? I want to take it very seriously. So help us in that. We pray that you would show us what, what we're going to talk about today in very personal terms, how that should resonate. We thank you for salvation. We think of the many that are here or have been watching or are watching online that have bowed the knee to Christ already. We think of those that have recently done that in our church. And we think of those that are on the precipice, on the edge of that. And even this morning, chatting with someone and talking to me about a family that's close to coming to faith. Lord, we pray that they would surrender their life, that they would have a relationship with you. And so, Lord, as we look into your word now, we pray your touch and your blessing. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Ken Davis is an author and a comedian, and he writes a story of something that took place in the room just before the game in an NFL game. And what happened was, is the coach got up and was going to do the little pep talk that they typically do before the game starts. His players are all sitting around, and he turned to one of his players, a guy named Perry, and he said, Perry, when I'm done speaking... I want you to lead us all in the Lord's Prayer. And the coach started to talk. And as he was talking, the quarterback, Jim, nudged his friend, John, and he says, look at Perry. Perry doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. And they both looked over at him, and Perry had this panicked look on his face. He had his hands in his, his face in his hands, and he was sweating. A couple of minutes goes by, and Jim punches Uh, John again, and he says, you know what? I don't think he knows it, and I'm going to bet you 50 bucks that he doesn't know the Lord's Prayer. And John says, well, I'm not sure how appropriate it is to be betting about the Lord's Prayer, but I guess you're on. Coach finishes his pep talk, and he tells everyone to remove their hat or remove their helmet or whatever the case is, and he nods at Perry, and the coach bows his head, and there's quiet for a few moments. And finally, Perry begins to pray. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray my Lord, my soul to keep. John feels Jim tap him on the shoulder. Jim hands him a $50 bill and said, I had no idea that Perry knew the Lord's Prayer. You'll get it here in just a moment. I wonder how many people don't know the Lord's Prayer. They might be able to recite the Lord's Prayer But do you know it? And more importantly, does it know you? And that's what we want to do in this series of messages. We want to dive deep into the Lord's Prayer and the principles it teaches us about how to pray. And so if you have your Bible or your device, I invite you to turn with me to the book of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible there's, and you'd like to borrow one, there's one at the back, or if you need one, we'll give you a Bible. Feel free to help yourself. Matthew chapter 6, and I'm going to read it to you as well. Now, Solo, he knows it in Portuguese, but I know it in the King James, so I'm going to read it to you in the NIV, because they're not exactly the same. Bear in mind, like we talked about last week, that the Lord Jesus had this vital relationship with God the Father. That the scriptures tell us um, he, he, the, the words that he spoke and the things he did were the things that were revealed to him by God the Father. And the disciples had been watching this front row seats. 
And they longed to have that kind of relationship with God the Father. And they understood that it really emanated and it came from their life, Jesus' life of prayer. And so one day, one of the disciples, after Jesus had finished praying, said, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? And so sometimes we recite this prayer, and that's a very good thing to do, but also it's teaching us the elements of a healthy, balanced prayer life. And interestingly enough, if you look at the other prayers of Scripture, many of these elements, you'll see them repeated over and over again in the prayers. The words might be different, but the ideas are found in the different prayers of Scripture. Having said that, Listen to what Jesus says to them in response, would you teach us to pray? He says in verse 9, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We looked at that verse last week. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And we're going to focus today on verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. How can we build these ideas, these concepts into our prayer life? I said last week that sometimes a prayer can be as short as the word help or Lord, I don't know what to do. Show me what to do. Sometimes it's very truncated like that and that's fine. But oftentimes it's longer, and we are encouraged by, as Jesus teaches us, to have these ideas in mind. So one of the big ideas, last week we talked about it, he said, as you're praying, be sure to hallow the name of God, to, to pray words of praise and exaltation and glorification, acknowledging God for who he is. And there's this richness in the relationship when we acknowledge him as the creator and we're the created. It puts life and what's important in life really in perspective. So have that kind of idea in a healthy prayer life. Today, we're going to be talking about the kingdom coming and his will being done. What is God's kingdom like? And what does it mean to pray that it will come? The scripture writers use a bunch of images to convey to us what life will be like under God's leading. Now, this is a little complicated. It's one of the things that we see over and over in scripture, the idea of the already and not yet. And the idea here when it applies to this is that the kingdom of God is at work already, but it's also yet to fully come. The already and not yet. We see this many times in scripture in all kinds of different areas. And so Jesus is inviting us to take moments to consider what that means and then to pray in terms of God's kingdom fully coming in terms of his will being fully done. And when his kingdom does fully come, there's some powerful images that scripture brings forward that I want to remind you of, and I encourage you to be encouraged by them. They're incredibly encouraged. So when Jesus comes back and his his kingdom fully comes, it says in the book of Revelation, never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. 
The sun will not beat upon them, nor any scorching heat. And so when God's kingdom is fully realized, there will be no more hunger or thirst. There'll be no more pictures on TV of little children with swollen bellies. There'll be the idea of abundance. It says in Amos chapter 9, the days are coming, Amos writes, and the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. And so he's speaking prophetically and he's saying, when the kingdom of God fully comes, redemption will overtake and eliminate the effects of the curse. Human conflict. It says in Isaiah chapter 2, He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Peace. And a time when you'll have no more enemies, when the kingdom of God is fully realized. The Apostle John, writing in the last book of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, He uses this image, this vision. He says that God's community, when God's kingdom has fully come, God's community will have streets that are paved in gold. And again, it's an image. The city will have 12 gates, it says in the image, and each gate will be made of a solid, single pearl. And he's saying, let me use the imagery to describe that the kingdom of God will satisfy the hunger that every human being has for beauty. It'll be fully satisfied in the kingdom. No more pollution. No more run-down buildings. No more broken windows. And when people look in the mirrors at themselves, they will understand they're beautiful because in the kingdom of God, God looks at the inner person, not the outer person. And whatever their shape or size, because they're made in the image of God, they will see and they will understand fully that they are beautiful. No more fear. Again, John writing in Revelation 21 says, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. In other words, there'll be no more sin, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. When the kingdom of God is fully realized, No more need to lock your door. No more need to set the security system. And one last image from Revelation 21 again. It says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. No more crying. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. A place where you won't need Kleenex and no more funeral homes. And every day at home with God, the one who has always perfectly loved you. No barriers because of sin. No separation because of sin. And we will be with God and he will be, and we will be his people. And this is what God's kingdom will look like when it's fully realized. This is something to be excited about. This is something to be expectant about. And of course, God's kingdom is at work now. This is the already and not yet. God's kingdom is at work now. 
but it's also to come fully when Christ returns. And he says, pray for this to come. Jesus speaking prophetically about it says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. And when we are filled with the Spirit, it's possible in a progressive, maturing way to live in the presence and power of God, to follow Christ, to be his fully devoted follower, and to learn how to live in the Father's kingdom. This idea of the kingdom now and yet to come. And Jesus casts this very compelling vision. He says, the kingdom of God is open to you. Available to ordinary people like me and like you. And you can live in it right now until one day it comes in all its fullness. And one day there will be no other kingdoms. And I think this is part of the reason that people get confused by the language of Scripture. Because when Jesus is speaking about the kingdom having come and it being in him, we forget that currently there's other kingdoms at work and in operation. There's the kingdom of Caesar. There's kingdoms in other countries. There's different economic powers, which are like little kingdoms. There's the kingdom of the evil one, if I can put it that way. And in one way or another, to one degree or another, they're all sort of opposed to God. But Jesus says one day there will be one kingdom we will experience in all its fullness. And we should pray for that to come. How will this happen? How will the kingdom come? You know, I read books sometimes and I listen to people and, and, and you have people with these elaborate plans that are all based in human power. So revolutions come and revolutions go. Governments get overthrown. Very little changes. People still hate each other, no matter who's in power. Wars still break out. Because all of the power of humanity can't change the human heart. That's something only Jesus can do. And some people think, you know, if we could just get the economy going in this certain way, that will make it happen. Or if we could, in politics, just get this certain woman or this certain man elected, that'll do the trick. And obviously, there's some real good that comes from those kind of things, properly administered, proper politics, proper economics, all that kind of stuff. But not one of those things or any combination of them is the ultimate answer when it comes to the kingdom. So how does the kingdom come? Very simply, it's not an elaborate thing. The kingdom comes, it says in this verse, when we pray. It starts with prayer. Your kingdom come. And so we pray individually. We pray progressively. We pray corporately together as a group. And this has an impact in the kingdom coming. And if you look at the prayer, there's, there's seven requests in this prayer. The first three are all you petitions. It says, your name be hallowed. We look at that last week in verse 9. Today we're looking at your kingdom come, your will be done in verse 10. But the next four, and we're going to start into those next week, shift into all about us. And it says, give us our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Don't bring us into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. And so the first three are about the kingdom. 
Um, the second of those three is all about bringing in the kingdom. One and three are all about what the kingdom will look like and what the kingdom is like. That God's name is hallowed and that the kingdom is a place where God's will is done. And it all starts with prayer. And I don't know how to say it more simply. But Jesus says the kingdom, which is the one thing that will save you and will ultimately save the world, which is what we all wait for, the kingdom comes when we pray. Let me talk about just some practical suggestions about how to exercise that. We talked about this a little bit last week. I'll say it again. I'm inviting you for these six weeks to each day pray this prayer. And it's not about, and there's nothing wrong with reciting this prayer, great prayer to recite, but it's, it's even more than that. It's an, and this is my prayer as I pray the prayer, that this prayer and the ideas of this prayer will soak deep into my soul, that it will change how I do life. It'll change how I pray. And that the principles of this prayer that we've talked about and will talk about will um, just sort of ooze out of me all the time. So do that for the next six weeks. You know, my wife was reminding me, they're telling us all to, to wash our hands, you know, obviously numerous times a day. They say you should wash for 20 seconds. And did you know it takes about 20, between 20 and 23 seconds to recite the Lord's Prayer? So rather than just kind of putting your mind on autopilot as you're washing your hands, why don't you take that time to pray the Lord's Prayer and allow it to go deep into your life, to grapple with the principles. What does it really mean to be a person that hallows the name of God? What does it really mean to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done? What does it mean? Because when you pray, God, you're your, your kingdom come, your will be done. That starts with me right here, right now. And I remind you that when you study the life of Jesus, the hardest prayer he ever prayed, the one that was the most difficult for him to pray, was, Lord, your will be done as I'm kneeling down in the Garden of Gethsemane. The night that he was betrayed, he's praying. And he says to his father, if it's possible. I know I've been on mission since before creation to this moment in history. I've been on mission leading all the way to this point in history. But if it's possible, he prays, can you take this cup from me? Is there another way? But not my will be done, your will be done. And part of the implication of that kind of prayer is, I'm ready to suffer for you. I'm ready to sacrifice for you. And he knew what was coming. He knew that in a few minutes after he prayed that prayer, they were going to come and falsely arrest him. They had paid people off to lie about him. They had paid people in the crowds to chant, crucify him. He knew he'd be beaten. He knew he'd be condemned even though he'd done nothing wrong. He knew he was going to be murdered through the conspiracy. And he knew he was going to rise from the dead. And so when he prayed, not my will, but your will be done, that's a loaded prayer. Has monster implications for us. And the Bible says that anyone that wants to lead a godly life will suffer for the cause of Christ. It says in scripture, different places, if you're a follower of Christ, you will have trouble. 
In fact, it says the world will hate you, not because you've done anything wrong, but simply because you're living out biblical principles. So when we pray, your will be done, that's a significant prayer. What does that mean in my prayer life? Let me give you some more practical examples to pray and say, what what would God's will like when I'm at work? How will it impact how I conduct my work? What about your life relationally? If you're married here this morning, it will mean sacrifice. Scripture paints that picture of giving yourself up for your spouse in a sacrificial way. If you're single, you could be here right now, and perhaps you're in a relationship you know is not honoring to God. And you know it's very clear in Scripture what relationships should look like. And you know that God's will is not being lived out in that relationship. But the truth is, if you want to be in God's will, you know it needs to change or it needs to stop. Lord, please teach me what it would mean to bring the reality of your will into the relationships I have. What are the implications of that? What about financially? May your will be done in my life financially. And that leads to action. The way we, how, how we, we spend money, how we save money, how we give. And you know, I've been in this church for now 23 years, and, and I know this took place for many years before I came here. I've seen this church faced with some real financial challenges over the years. And this is the nature of any church wanting to fulfill God's will. Even though the money's used very carefully, um, that's just the case. And I have seen this. I've learned a lot about this, but I have got so much more to learn where you can just trust God in these areas. Not only in the church, but in our own life. We are wise in how we spend. And we've, then we've prayed when there's been challenges. And over and more times than I can count, over and over and over and over and over again, God has met the need. God has moved his people and they've given sacrificially. And so let's not forget that. Let's not become complacent. We can trust him. we sincerely pray, Lord, may your will be done financially in my life. Dallas is dead now. She's a lady that I've known for 25 to 30 years. If she was still alive, she would be just over 100 years of age. Dallas lost her first husband, died in a tank in World War II in France remarried Elmer, and all the time I've known Dallas, she had a big smile on her face. Mostly knew her during her 80s. Friendly, outgoing lady. I think you would have liked her a lot. And some people would look at Dallas, especially when she was in her 80s and 90s, and think, very nice person, very godly person, but she is slowing down quite a bit physically, and she doesn't have much to offer anymore. I would beg to differ with you. Dallas was still an absolute go-getter in ministry, serving based on how God gifted her and showed her how to serve. One of the areas she told me about that she served in revolved around prayer. Now, I don't remember the name of her relative. I believe it was one of her cousins, first cousin, a guy. 
and it was someone who was about her age, and this guy was far from God, had no kind of relationship with him whatsoever, either an atheist or an agnostic. And Dallas, God laid on Dallas's heart, she was praying one day, and God laid on her heart to pray for him to come to Christ. She began praying for him. She prayed one day. She prayed one week. She prayed one month. She prayed one year. Then she prayed five years. Then she prayed 10 years. And she prayed virtually every day during those 10 years. And she told me this is how she prayed for this relative. Heavenly Father, may your kingdom come into my relative's life. May your will be done in their life. And of course we know, can I get you to turn it down just a little bit? Awesome, thanks. Um, We know in God's life, in God's will in 2 Peter, it says he's not willing that any should perish. And so God's posture is always that people would bow the knee to Christ, that they would acknowledge their sin, that they would ask for forgiveness, that they would surrender their life to him. Many people choose not to do this. God gives the people ability to choose. But his posture and his desire, it says in 2 Peter, that is that everyone would. And so she was praying very much in keeping with God's will for this relative. But after years and years, 10 years of praying, he was still hard as a rock absolutely opposed to God or the idea of God. And I don't know about you, but I think after 10 years of praying virtually every day, I would become discouraged and be tempted to quit. Not Dallas. Prayed for 15 years. May my relative own his sin. May he repent of his sin. May he be forgiven by the sacrifice of Christ, based on that sacrifice, may he come into relationship with him 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 50 years. After 60 years of praying virtually every day, her relative came to the end of himself. This is what it takes, an absolute humbling of oneself. And he turned his life in its entirety over to Christ and gave his life to Christ. And that relative's in heaven. Now Dallas has joined him as well. And when we pray for God's kingdom to come, we pray for it to come into our life, but also into our friend's life, into our co-worker's life, into our child's life, into our grandchildren's life, into our spouse's life, into our mother's life, into our father's life. And I invite you to pray for God's kingdom, which is God's will for God's kingdom to come into the life of those people close to you in your sphere of influence. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven.